Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. The writer Andrew O'Hagan has said that a novelist is someone who might respond to the sound of a piano in another room. The remark was aimed at his creative writing students, encouraging them to seek inspiration in everyday sensory experience. But surely this can happen to any one of us. A scent, a sound, a conversation overheard, a snatch of music can make an impression on the memory much deeper than the weight of its fleeting occurrence. For me, the sound of a piano in another room instantly conjures up the memory of a house in Cork City in the summer of 1990. I had been invited to the home of Eamon Young, Cork footballing legend and retired army officer, with whom I was collaborating on a book to celebrate the Rebel County's historic double-winning season. We were taking a break, and Eamon's wife Monica had just brought in tea before leaving us to discuss the work in progress. Moments later, I was stopped in mid-sentence by the achingly sweet sound of voice and piano echoing through the old house. That the piano accompaniment was halting and somewhat arthritic only added to the melancholy of the moment, as Monica's tremulous soprano hovered over that loveliest of Moore's melodies, The Last Rose of Summer. Eamon set down his tea and raised a finger. Listen, he said. I was listening already. Would she, I wondered, risk the high note in the last line, or who would inhabit this bleak world alone? She did, and nailed it effortlessly. Eamon beamed with pride. Monica soon joined us and spoke fondly of the musical career her talent might have promised, a talent recognised by no less a figure than Count John McCormack, whom she had met as a young woman. Meeting Yeoman Young, as he was sometimes known, was equally fortunate for me. The journalist who had agreed to write the book originally withdrew at the last minute, and ever willing, Eamon had stepped into the breach. No man was better qualified for the job. Not alone had he won an All-Ireland football medal with Cork in 1945, he had also trained the team and served as a county selector. Under the nom de plume Rambler, he had been writing a GAA column for the Echo and the Cork Examiner for many years. Yeoman's your only man was the advice I was given, and never had I cause to regret acting upon it. In the early stages, the book progressed at a funereal pace, unsurprising, really, since Eamon was obliged to hammer out his copy on the most antiquated typewriter in all of Munster. Several letters were bockety or missing, so that the manuscript often took on the appearance of a failed text message. I came to dread the phone calls from the poor, confused editor in Edinburgh. What does he mean here? Is he speaking Irish? Leave it with me. I'll ask him. Eamon would laugh, apologise and blame the wretched typewriter, but the no-nonsense declarative prose and the love of Ireland's native games invariably shone through. As the weeks passed, the manuscript pages kept coming. Every Friday, Eamon would march into Waterstones with the latest sheaf of pages in a crisp manila envelope. He would refuse to leave them at the cash register, insisting he would only hand them over to Mr Wright. 
This infuriated the staff, who resented being treated like mere underlings, but being a military man, Eamon would only deal with the officer class. Then, proffering his customary violent handshake, he'd be off up to Colin's barracks for a game of squash or along to Jury's for his swim. Thirty years his junior, I often felt as if the opposite were true. In the scale of holy miracles, producing the book in time for Christmas must rank alongside the ultimate Christmas miracle. But whether by divine intervention or the determination of the Scottish publisher, the first finished copies finally arrived and Rebels at the Double was soon flying out of every bookshop in Cork City, primarily out of Waterstones, who were permitted to display the hallowed vessels, the Sam Maguire and the Liam McCarthy in our shop window. The launch party, hosted by Waterstones, was attended by the high kings of Cork football and hurling, including a formidable priest who seemed to command such deference he might have been the Holy Father himself. Tall and solid, with a leonine head and a thick mane of grey hair on him, Father O'Brien, I later discovered, had not come to discourage unchristian behaviour. He was, in fact, the coach of the senior hurlers and the doyen of Cork hurling. Yarman was duly honoured by his peers, including Father O'Brien, and the whisky consumed that night would have flooded the banks of their own lovely lee. Rebels at the Double went on to become a leeside bestseller, and by December 24th, every home in Cork City and County must have owned a copy, the few remaining copies being fought over with the grim determination known only to the last-minute Christmas shopper. By the summer of 91, I had left Cork for America, but not before bidding my old friend Eamon Young farewell. He was full of praise for the virtues of travel and wished me well, declaring that together we had done the Republic of Cork some service by commemorating their double-winning season in prose. When I returned to Dublin, I often felt inclined to pay Eamon a visit, but the rigours of raising a young family intervened, and I regret to say I never did. His beloved Monica predeceased him, which must have been a bitter blow, but Yeoman, one of the noblest corkmen of them all, lived to the ripe old age of 86, and his long innings was richly deserved. Recently, I heard Nina Simone sing her wonderful version of The Last Rose of Summer, and immediately I was transported back to that house in Cork, where, warmed by the glow of good conversation and John Jimison's finest, I had whiled away the hours in the company of two fine oldsters, Eamon and Monica Young. Andrew Hagen was right about the sound of a piano in another room. My mother was a fantastic knitter. I remember the rhythmic seesawing of her knitting needles, the balls of wool, the variety of stitches, plain, pearl, crew and rib, and how she'd glance from time to time at the pattern, usually taken from Woman's Way magazine. Gradually, a jumper sleeve or a sock would start to emerge, like magic. I'd watch transfixed. I even got Mam to teach me how to knit. But as with my other childhood passion, hurling, 
I didn't progress very far. I only got as far as the simpler plain and pearl stitches and dropped quite a few in my efforts to master the craft. All those childhood memories came flooding back to me as I sat in the Hogan stand in Croke Park two weeks ago, watching my native Limerick do battle with Waterford for a place in today's All-Ireland hurling final. It was the sheer class of the Limerick players, stitching their own kind of intricate patterns with hurley and handpass, culminating in glorious scores from every angle of the pitch that reminded me of my late mother's genius. These are giddy, pinch-me days for every Limerick hurling fan. We're simply not used to sitting atop this pinnacle of greatness. After a 45-year famine, we now find ourselves bidding to win our third hurling title in just four years. And with all the pundits tipping Limerick to win, it's definitely nosebleed territory. Yes, we're entitled to feel confident, but arrogant? Never. The scars of way too many routs and disappointments over the past 50 years remain fresh. What we now have, however, is a once-in-a-generation hurling squad which is setting a new benchmark for skill, athleticism and tenacity in our ancient game. There isn't a weak link in this team. From Nicky Quaid in goal to Aaron Galan in the top corner, they are all superb hurlers. Last year's standout performers, Gero Tegarty and Tom Morrissey, were back to their mercurial best in the semi-final. Super cool Keen Lynch continues to display his hurling wizardry, while Seamus Flanagan at full forward seems to have found a radar-guided hurley, such is his accuracy. And presiding over this hurling orchestra of all the talents is the calm, determined captain, Declan Hannan. There'll be some team if they can turn that around, the man said beside me in Porky Keeve last month. It was half-time in the Munster final, which was being played in a sweltering heat wave. Tipperary were leading by ten points and playing majestically. But turn it around Limerick did, eventually winning by five points. It was a breathtaking second-half display, embellished by one of the greatest goals ever scored in hurling, and adding luster for me was that the scorer was Kyle Hayes from my native parish of Kildaimo Palace Kennery. Of course today's opponents, Cork, pose a very serious challenge. Along with Tipperary, they are the traditional kingpins of Munster hurling, with Limerick, Clare and Waterford often seen as the poor relations. There is a very keen age-old rivalry between our neighbouring counties, and over the years we've taken many a heavy beating from Cork. They stand second only to Kilkenny in the All-Ireland Roll of Honour, with 30 titles, Limerick of nine, and two of those were won in the last three years. And while Limerick did beat Cork earlier this year in the Championship, the Rebels have definitely progressed since that game, and showed their true class in a brilliant win over Kilkenny in the other semi-final. Today will be the first ever final between us, and another first, given the persistent shadow of Covid, will be an attendance of 40,000 spectators. Contrast that with last year's final, which was played in an empty stadium less than two weeks before Christmas. A kind of normality is gradually returning, and even if you're not a die-hard sports fanatic, today's spectacle in Croke Park is worth celebrating for that reason alone. One more thing. A century ago, the 1921 All-Ireland hurling title was won by Limerick, although the game wasn't played until March 1923 due to the disruptions of the War of Independence and the Civil War. And for that year's victory, they became the first recipients of the famed Liam McCarthy Cup, introduced back then for the All-Ireland hurling winners. 
So when five o'clock or thereabouts comes round today and it's time for the trophy presentation, a Limerick win would certainly round out a nice piece of historical symmetry. Limerick people everywhere will be hoping and praying for, and indeed even dreaming of, such an outcome. tapping, the waiting, the futile time-filling with post-mortems of lost games and missed scores, and oh, the waiting. Until finally, that stomach-spinning thrill, the surge of expectation at the first glimpse of red and white. Then, the chest-swelling pride as our hurlers enter like gladiators into the arena. The hearty chorusing of our Onavian and Shaliv Khani blending into shouts of Go on, the rebels! It's a magical feeling. This year, in reparation for less than spellbinding past championships, our Cork hurlers have kept us mesmerised. Hurling is a game of grace and genius. So many skills to be mastered. The block, the pull, the hook, the cut. Con Houlihan wrote, It may take several generations to produce a hurler. Well, Cork has pedigree in spades. The fire that Christy Ring once stoked has blazed into the brilliant beacon that is now Patrick Horgan. See him shoot points like arrows from the cross of Strongbow or take industrious midfielder Conor Cahalan, leaping, darting, chasing and clashing. He overcomes his mark, traps the slitter and works it on. Corner forward Jack O'Connor, nimble as a dancer, his body a fluid continuation of his hurley, angles the boss, coaxes up the slitter and hairs with it through bewildered defenders to shoot straight to the back of the net. The crowd roars in joy and wonder. Goalie Patrick Collins blocks raspers, pucks out short and finds his man. And then the long ball, the slitter spinning shapes in the air, Shane Kingston, with an absolute eye for the soaring ball, sends his fist upwards to pluck it like a bird from the sky. Watch him turn on a coin and then hear ash smack leather as the slitter flies over the bar. How proud we are in Cork of our hurlers and our county's colours. Many believe that the red and white honour St Anne's Shandon. Built from red sandstone and white limestone, it watches over the north side from the four faces of its clock tower. The local rhyme goes, party coloured like its people, red and white stands Shandon Steeple. Red and white, however, were not always associated with cork hurling. There is another story. In 1913, the GAA Congress decreed that each county should register its own jersey style and colour. Before this, counties decided for themselves and so colours varied from year to year. JJ Walsh, then president of the Cork County Board, selected a blue jersey with a large saffron letter C. It's said that Walsh, on a visit to Belgium with the Cork hurling team for the 1912 Celtic Congress, spotted these colours on the officers of the Belgian army. 
Cork teams wore the blue and saffron until 1919, when their entire stock of jerseys was dramatically stolen. During the turbulent years of the War of Independence, Cork was a hotbed of Republican activity, cementing its notoriety as the rebel county. Cork GAA stalwarts J.J. Walsh, Tyke Barry and Limo Rochelle regarded the GAA as a political training ground. In addition, the local association had regular contact with London-based activists Liam McCarthy and Sam Maguire. Days before Cork's first game in the Munster Championship of 1919, members of the RIC, in search of incriminating evidence, broke into the Cork County Board offices at Cook Street. Frustrated at finding nothing and determined to issue a warning, the officers purloined the blue jerseys. Frantic efforts were made to regain the jerseys and rumours of sightings abounded. A local scalawag, detained overnight in the barracks, swore that he saw the jerseys piled up as a bed under the sergeant's dog. With a game looming, replacements had to be found and fast. Fortunately for the team, the Father O'Leary Total Abstinence Hurling Club had recently amalgamated with St Finbar's and so had a redundant set of jerseys. The snag, however, was that these jerseys were a bright, gaudy red. Furthermore, many of the team members who liked a pint of Beamish feared ridicule at having TA, standing for total abstinence, emblazoned in large letters on their chests. Choice, however, was a luxury they did not have. So, just over a hundred years ago, to the astonishment of the fans, Cork players, for the very first time, took to the field in the now familiar red. Cork beat Waterford that day, and went on to triumph in the All-Ireland final, ending a 16-year drought. And maybe today's the day when Cork's young team, all heart and determination, will end the Rebels' current 16-year drought. Go on, Cork! The young man boarded the Limerick-bound train at Thurlis and placed a brand new Hurley, very carefully, on the table between us before sitting down opposite me. I couldn't help myself. I had to reach out and touch it. Rough. It was rough and not as smooth and refined as the Hurleys I used to know. In fact, the word that flashed on my mind was clumsy. I had never before seen a hurley with a bust that shape. The young man noticed my puzzled frown and said, It's a Kilkenny hurley. A Kilkenny hurley, I repeated. Ah, you bought it in Kilkenny? No, I bought it in Thurlis. Oh. I looked at the hurley again, noticing that the boss seemed extra wide. Ah, now I have it. You're a goalkeeper. With an annoyed smack of his lips, he shook his head and said, 
No, I'm a free taker. That's why I bought a Kilkenny Hurley. Oh, end of conversation. I opened my book before I could aggravate him any further. But the question niggled me all the way to and from Limerick until I got back home to Kildare again. Is there such a thing as a Kilkenny Hurley? I asked the All-Ireland medal winner of our house, telling him of my brief encounter on the train. There's no such thing as a Kilkenny Hurley, he assured me. That fellow was only having you on. And I believed him. For after all, he's a man who knows his Hurleys. In fact, I accompanied him when he went to buy one years ago in that old Limerick sports store, Nestor's. Several Hurleys were shown to him that day. Then one by one, he measured them against his hip for correct height. That narrowed his choice down to about six or so. Next, he explained to me, the grip and the weight depended on how light and comfortable the hurley felt when swinging it with one hand. Patrons in Nestor's that day gave him a wide berth. After that performance, four hurleys remained. There was a close scrutiny of the curve of the grain right down to the boss that narrowed his choice down to two. Of those two, the final one had to have a perfectly turned heel and toe and a slim ankle. So between the grip, the boss, the weight, the height, the heel, the toe and the ankle, it took so long I vowed never to be drawn into the process again. But buying the hurley was the easy part. Back home it was checked again, this time for flexibility and that's when the beauty treatment began. The hurley was given a very close shave with a piece of broken glass until it was streamlined to the point where you could see the satin sheen of the grain in the ash wood. There was a loving massage of linseed oil to help with its elasticity and durability. And it was left to rest for a couple of days before the finishing touches were added. The boss was bound with two steel hoops and finally, the grip was bandaged with insulating tape so that it wouldn't slide out of his hand during the game. And as my hero took his place behind the Artane boys' band, with number six on his green jersey in Croke Park, he swung his hurley, confident that he and it were both capable of giving their best for Limerick. But that was a long time ago. And things have changed in the world of Hurleys. I was talking to a man from Kilkishan in County Clare who makes Hurleys for a living. And when I recounted my conversation with the young man on the train, he told me that, yes, there is such a thing as a Kilkenny Hurley. Not alone that, you can get a Clare, Waterford or Galway modelled. Or you might even like to have one with the treaty stone embossed on it if you're lucky enough to be on the Limerick team. It really is a matter of choice, the man from Kilkishan said. Just like golfers choose clubs, hurlers now have the choice of several designs. It's all about the strike, the control and balance of the hurley. A free taker would know exactly which model suits him best. So the young man on the Limerick train knew that. I didn't know. Neither did my Limerick hero that there is such a thing 
as a Kilkenny Hurley. I first met Christy Ring when I was 11. We'd won the under-12 Street League final and we were to go along to the Glen Hall to receive our trophies. It shows how poor a hurler I was when I was placed 19th in the waiting queue. One by one, my teammates went up. At last, my turn came and, with legs like jelly, I walked up the aisle head down, hair over my face, as the great man shook my hand, two things stood out. First, his massive wrists. Second, he had the most unusual steel blue eyes which seemed to have a built-in twinkle. I'll never forget what he said to me. Keep your eye on the ball even when it's in the referee's pocket. He presented me with my trophy. That night, I floated home. Not alone was Christy Ring the most charismatic player of all time at his chosen sport, but for a quarter of a century he was outstanding when the standard was at an extraordinary high level. He played with fire in his veins and a pride and passion in his performance. At the age of 16 I cycled from Cork up to Limerick just to see him play. He was reputed to double the attendance wherever he played. He was the only player in the world I'd pay money to see training. He tried the impossible. What other player would practice cutting the ball over the bar from behind the corner flag? In the 1950s, it seemed to be an annual pilgrimage to Limerick to watch Cork do battle with Tipperary in the Munster final. Tipperary's full backline, Bourne, Maher and Carey had an awesome reputation and with Tony Redden behind him in goal they were like the rock of Cashel. Nothing passed. When Cork did score I can still see the slitter sailing over the bar while the tip defenders wrapped their hurlies around their unfortunate opponents' necks. Then there was that colossus John Doyle. It must have been like going through the Berlin Wall to find yourself being flattened by a Russian tank. Even Rye of the Rovers would have had his hands full, yet Ringy got many great goals in those games. There were six titanic struggles, fought out with an intense fervour, and the victors went on to win the All-Ireland title each time. But will there ever be a more dramatic Munster final than that of 1956, when Cork played Limerick? I was a shy, sensitive garçon, listening in my aunt's kitchen in Dublin. With ten minutes remaining, Cork were being trashed by Limerick, and that fine hurler, Donald Broderick, was playing a blinder and ring. Radio Wern decided to switch over to the Ulster football decider. What a mistake! 
with despair in my heart, I sat down and waited for the result. Limerick 3-5, Cork 5-5, I jumped up and in my excitement I knocked cups and saucers all over the place. My aunt picked up a frying pan and gave me a box across the back. But in my euphoria, I didn't feel a thing. Ringy had the actor's instinct for dramatic timing, and his three goals in five minutes in that eventful game were pure genius. In hindsight, Limerick didn't stand a chance. Come September, and those giants from Wexford stood between Ring and his ninth All-Ireland medal. Memories from that thrilling game will stay with me forever. Ring's great tussle with Willie Rackard, his solo run and point, followed by a goal which electrified the crowd of 83,000. At Foley's late, important save, which got better and better in memory as the years rolled by. I was quite near it, and on the day, I thought it was a very ordinary save. I can still see Ringy charging in on the goalkeeper, and the apprehensive Art Foley hopping up and down on his goal line. But the great man just shook his hand, and when the final whistle blew, in a lovely gesture of sporting reciprocation, the Wexford backs shouldered him like a king from Croke Park. Sadly, as Cork was to go through a barren ten-year patch after that, it was his last All-Ireland. My children mock me when I polish my little silver egg cup which I received from Christy Ring all those years ago in the Glen Hall. I ignored them because that night I met my God. On this morning's programme, a mix of new and archive scripts, we heard Rebels at the Double by Bert Wright. Limerick Hurlers Weaving Magical Patterns by Stephen O'Burns. Go on Cork by Lured Mackey. The Clash of the Ash by Mae Leonard. And finally there, Christy Ring, The First Superstar by Jim McKeown. This morning's music was The Last Rose of Summer sung by Nina Simone. Dream by The Cranberries. After All by the Frankled Walters and Ashplant Reels by Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Willem McCartney. The producer is Sarah Binchy. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.